This is KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Tuesday, January 24th of 2022. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, nearly 15,000 upcoming students have enrolled in Colorado's new Universal Preschool program. We'll get the details from Chalkbeat, Colorado. State Wildlife Commissioners are soliciting public comments on the state's wolf restoration and management plan through a series of public meetings, including one scheduled for tomorrow. And This Week in Water gives us three reasons to be optimistic about the climate. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have an update from the BBC News headlines, then it's How on Earth. Today, the KGNU Science Show examines the creative lives of animals with the author of the book by the same name. At 9 a.m. comes another archival recording of British philosopher Alan Watts. Then at 9.30, Ginger Perry will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that's still ahead, but first it's time for headlines with KGNU's John Kellen. Workers at the Boulder Starbucks at Baseline and Broadway will vote today on whether to unionize. The National Labor Relations election had been scheduled for last week but was postponed due to a snowstorm. If employees vote to join Starbucks Workers United, the store would become the first union Starbucks in Boulder and the ninth in Colorado. Nationwide, more than 270 Starbucks outlets have voted to unionize. Voting will take place through the day, with the ballot count beginning at 5 p.m. Teller County's sheriff goes on trial today in Cripple Creek, Colorado. He's facing a lawsuit that is the first of its kind in the country. KGNU's Alyssa Palazzo has more. The Colorado Office of American Civil Liberties Union filed a complaint in 2019 against Jake Mikesell, Teller County's sheriff, for enforcing federal immigration law. A Colorado statute from 2019 prohibits local law enforcement from detaining people on the basis of immigration status without a judicial order. Detainees under Mikesell's authority remained in prison and were turned over to ICE after posting bond, despite Colorado law requiring their release. Additionally, Mike Sell sent deputies to an out-of-state immigration law training, which, according to the ACLU's complaint, was paid for by the Teller County Sheriff's Office. Mike Sell denied using taxpayer dollars for something prohibited by Colorado law. The plaintiffs include six Teller County taxpayers represented by the ACLU of Colorado. For KGNU, I'm Alyssa Palazzo. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is asking for public feedback on a new complaint system that lets anyone in the state share concerns about environmental pollution. The system is meant to provide citizens with a centralized place to report possible air and water pollution, illegal dumping, and many other environmental and public health issues. For now, the system is a prototype. It's expected to be fully operational in mid-April after incorporating feedback from the public and from the Environmental Protection Agency. The complaint system will be available in English and Spanish, but concerns can be submitted in any language. On Monday, Denver broke ground for construction on a new homeless shelter for young people. KGNU's Steve Miller has the story. The old Urban Peak Shelter began serving young people experiencing homelessness in 1998. The Denverite reports that the shelter became overcrowded and in need of repairs. The new building will increase shelter capacity from 30 residents to 136 residents, plus on-site case management and health services. It will also include a separate wing for people ages 21 to 24, who legally cannot stay in shelters for minors, but often do not want to stay in adult shelters. During construction, Urban Peak is serving youth at 
The Spot, on Stout Street in Denver. The new $37 million shelter named The Mothership is set to open at Urban Peak's old shelter on Acoma Street in 2024. Data from a research group studying young people experiencing homelessness found youth without a high school diploma or GED, youth with children, youth earning less than $24,000, as well as LGBT, Black, and Hispanic youth are all at increased risk. The Denver Rescue Mission reports that homelessness has become more complex with all people experiencing homelessness. It includes other factors like Denver's housing market, the nationwide opioid epidemic, and family homelessness. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. Colorado had more car-related fatalities last year than at any year since 1981. According to a State Department of Transportation report, about 750 people lost their lives in traffic accidents last year, a nearly 60% increase over the last decade. At a news conference yesterday, officials introduced their new Advancing Transportation Safety Program meant to reduce traffic deaths. The program calls for safer roads, safer drivers, better pedestrian safety, and improved emergency responses to crashes. A CDOT official said that while their report paints a dismal picture, he's confident the trend of traffic fatalities is reversible. City leaders from the Cool Boulder campaign are inviting the public to celebrate biodiversity and local climate action on January 31st. The free event at the Junkyard Social Club on Frontier Avenue includes a presentation from Boulder senior ecologist and a panel discussion. In-person attendees can sample food from a local chef and learn about sustainable food systems. In today's weather, mostly cloudy skies in the Boulder-Denver corridor with a 30% chance of snow mainly after 4 p.m. Highs near 31 in the Denver metro area and about 36 degrees in Fort Collins. Total daytime snow accumulation expected to be less than half an inch. There's a 50% chance of more snow later on, mainly before 1 a.m. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. All four-year-olds and some three-year-olds in Colorado are now eligible to enroll in free preschool. State officials say the response to Colorado's new universal preschool program has been incredible. As of yesterday, some 14,800 Coloradans have applied to the program, which makes children eligible for a free half day of preschool, or 15 hours per week, in the year before they enter kindergarten. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Maeve Conran spoke with Ann Shimke of Chalkbeat, Colorado, about the program, which begins in the 2023-24 school year. Governor Polis, when he was elected, first elected four years ago, universal preschool was one of his signature priorities. Um, Two years into his term, um, voters approved a nicotine tax that would help pay for that vision of universal preschool. Over the past year and a half or so, um, early childhood leaders have been kind of planning how the program's going to work, and it officially launches next summer, so probably August or September is when kids are actually going to start going. What are the age ranges of children who are now eligible to avail of this free preschool? Primarily, the program is designed 
for four-year-olds. Um, those are children who will be eligible for kindergarten the following year. There's also some slots for three-year-olds, um, and those will be for children who have certain qualifying factors. So for example, maybe they speak a language other than English at home, they have a disability, they're homeless, they're in foster care, or their families are lower income. So those three-year-olds will qualify. In addition, four-year-olds who have similar factors will qualify for more hours. So the standard for four-year-olds is 15 hours a week, but four-year-olds with these various factors, they'll qualify for 30 hours a week. So almost kind of a full-time type of schedule. What you're describing there really gets to the heart of a lot of what Governor Polis has talked about when it comes to the benefits of early education is that if you can intervene, especially for children who are at other disadvantages, you can really make a difference. But it's that early intervention. So maybe talk a little bit more about why these children who are eligible for these extra hours, why it is so important or the ethos behind trying to intervene with them as early as possible. Yeah, I think that's exactly right that um, when students do come to school with various disadvantages, whether they have a disability or they come from a low-income family, um, it does help them um, to kind of intervene early and make sure that they're getting the skills they need to start kindergarten. I think universal kindergarten and or universal preschool, I'm sorry, in Colorado is also going to serve another purpose, and that's for families who maybe are even verging into middle income thresholds. So the income threshold for universal preschool where those children will get 30 hours, it actually goes up to 270% of the federal poverty line, which is around $80,000 for a family of four. And I think that was chosen in part because even for middle-income families, preschool is extremely expensive. And so I think in addition to helping students who need the most help early, they're also trying to help families who struggle to pay for it. It's one thing to qualify now for free preschool, but it's a very different thing to actually find preschool programs. And we have heard how difficult it can be, particularly in rural areas or even some urban areas to find well childcare and some suitable preschools as well. So what about that? Is there a concern that there are not enough facilities in the state to actually accommodate all of these preschoolers? Yeah, I think that is possibly a concern. Uh, The state did tell me last week that more than a thousand preschool providers had signed up to offer universal preschool. I think the issue is may not even be if there's enough slots available, but how those slots are distributed around the state. As you said, it's possible that in some rural areas, there's going to be a shortage of slots compared to the demand. Um, I think we have yet to really see it yet because the um, the kind of matching and enrollment process won't happen right away. 
I think that's going to become clearer this spring as the state kind of makes those matches and parents figure out whether their child actually got a spot. I would imagine that there's going to be a lot of tracking of data to see how this is going to impact educational outcomes. I mean, is there a sense that we're going to see some significant changes by having so much early intervention now for four-year-olds and some three-year-olds in Colorado? I think that's absolutely the hope is that we see the impact of preschool in kind of those later grades or, you know, elementary grades and going on up the ladder. Um, I do think there's still some questions there because one of the things that the state has not determined yet is what quality standards they're going to require universal preschool providers to meet. That decision is going to be made this spring. Um, So I think there's still many questions, including from providers about, you know, what curriculum they'll need to use and just various other standards that they may need to meet. Um, I think research has shown that high quality preschool is what gets you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of impact on children. But since we don't know the quality standards, I think it's an open question. How many three-year-old and four-year-olds in Colorado are expected to enroll in this? What are some of the statistics coming with this program? Uh, Yeah, so the state is expecting about 30,000 four-year-olds to enroll, and that's about half of the total four-year-olds in the state. Um, On the first day of the application, about 12,000 families applied. So it's possible it will even be more than 30,000 children when all is said and done. That's still, as you said, only half of the four-year-olds in the state. So what about the other half? Why are they not availing of this? So one thing to note is this program is voluntary. Parents do not have to put their children in preschool at all. And even if they want to, they don't have to choose a participating universal preschool provider. If the provider they've used, maybe for childcare, has decided not to participate and they're happy with that provider and they're able to pay for it, they may choose to stick with that provider. And like you mentioned, there also could be Uh, a shortage of slots in some areas. So even parents who want to avail themselves of the opportunity, it's possible their child won't get a slot if there just aren't enough in their community. Well, I know there's a lot more information in the article that you wrote, Anne, at Chalkbeat Colorado's website, co.chalkbeat.org. Anne Shimke, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. I appreciate it. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Maeve Conran. Colorado Wildlife Commissioners are soliciting public comments on the state's Wolf Restoration and Management Plan through a series of public meetings. Voters narrowly approved Proposition 114 in 2020, tasking the state to develop a plan to reintroduce and manage gray wolves in Colorado no later than December 31st of this year. Travis Duncan with Colorado Parks and Wildlife says the public meetings are part of this process. 
really it's just an effort to make sure we hear from as many Coloradans as possible and that our commission and our staff has all the information possible from stakeholders and, and folks who care about wolf restoration efforts so that we're able to make the best plan we can. The first meeting was held in Colorado Springs in mid-January, and the second meeting will be held in Gunnison on Wednesday. Three more meetings, two in-person and one virtual, will be held before February 22nd, the cutoff date for public comments. Duncan says the commission will approve a final wolf restoration and management plan in early May at their meeting in Glenwood Springs. But until then, things are not yet finalized. Elements of the plan could change. We really tried to emphasize that this is the draft wolf restoration and management plan. This is not a, a final product at this point. Uh, so now is the time to let your voice be heard and let us know what you think about the plan. The draft plan is available online for review and comments at engagecpw.org. Up next is This Week in Water with Jamie Sudler and Franny Halperin. Three reasons to be optimistic about the climate. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. World leaders, politicians, and titans of industry gathered in Davos, Switzerland last week at the World Economic Forum to discuss global issues, including the climate crisis. Among actions touted by corporations as doing their part are so-called carbon offsets, contracts where, instead of reducing their climate impacts, companies purchase credits and projects including reforestation, preservation, and renewable energy to offset their emissions so they can market their products and services as carbon neutral. To make sure the math works, independent firms like Vera calculate how much a project reduces emissions and then sells credits to companies such as United Airlines so customers can fly guilt-free or buy handbags from Gucci, which are promoted as helping conserve forests. But according to a nine-month investigation led by journalists at The Guardian, the credits bought by companies like Netflix, Disney, and Ben and & Jerry's are worthless. Using peer-reviewed studies and on-the-ground reporting, they found that more than 90% of Vera's popular rainforest offset credits were likely to be phantom credits, not representing any real carbon reductions at all. Vera issued a statement disputing the findings, and while the investigation casts doubt on the benefits of offsets, experts say they can be effective if companies combine valid ones with seriously cutting their greenhouse gas emissions. The concept of climate tipping points is scary. There are moments in time beyond which changes, like sea level rise, will continue even if global warming slows. Scientists say we're on the edge of multiple tipping points. However, a new report shows there are actually good tipping points which could substantially lower greenhouse gas emissions. These good tipping points are reached when zero-carbon-emitting technologies become more competitive than polluting versions, and three of them alone could cut greenhouse gases by 70% in the global economy electric vehicles, plant-derived proteins, and ammonia-based fertilizers. The authors say a tipping point in road transportation is very close due to the falling cost of electric vehicles and improvements in charging infrastructure. Meat and dairy cause about 15% of global emissions, 
But if hospitals, schools, and governments moved to plant-based proteins, it could reduce deforestation where land is cleared of trees to raise livestock. Using ammonia in fertilizers from green hydrogen rather than fossil fuels would lead to an increased demand for equipment to make the energy source that could be used in shipping, aviation, and steel production. Eating freshwater fish like trout or bass may expose a person to high levels of toxic forever chemicals. A new study from the Environmental Working Group shows that consuming just one fish could be the equivalent of drinking water laced with PFAS chemicals for a month. PFAS compounds are called forever chemicals because they're so persistent and found everywhere from drinking water and food to packaging and cosmetics. They accumulate in the body and don't break down in the environment. High amounts of the compounds in freshwater fish may result from their being caught downstream of manufacturing facilities, landfills, wastewater treatment plants, and airports, where sources of PFAS discharge into surface water. The study looked at samples of fish from all over the U.S. For example, a common carp from the South Platte River in Colorado near the Nebraska border contained more than 30,000 parts per trillion of PFAS compounds, more than one million times higher than the drinking water guidelines from the EPA. Among the fish examined, bass and catfish had the highest contamination, while Chinook and coho salmon contained the lowest. The report stresses that freshwater fish are an important source of protein for many people, especially those who cannot afford to buy fish in stores. And finally, lightning. It's both captivating and destructive, striking the U.S. alone nearly 25 million times a year, starting forest fires and causing power outages. Surprisingly, protecting property hasn't changed much since Benjamin Franklin invented the lightning rod in the 1700s. Although very effective, modern versions only defend an area relative to their height meaning a 30-foot-high rod will only secure a zone 30 feet around it, and that can leave expansive sites like airports, nuclear power plants, or wind farms at risk. To address the problem, European researchers developed a new type of lightning rod, a laser that beams a lot higher and therefore covers a wider area. To test their laser system, they installed it next to a lightning rod atop a communications tower on a Swiss mountain, which gets zapped over 100 times a year. The device emitted rapid, high-power pulses that ionized the air and enticed the bolt to follow its path toward the rod, which it did four times in a six-hour period. It's the first successful test outside of a lab, but more work is needed before laser rods become practical and affordable. Betcha if Ben Franklin were alive today, he would find the system enlightening. That's it for this week in water. Support comes from Right Water Engineers, providing water resources engineering in Colorado and beyond for more than 60 years. Projects, services, and resumes are online at rightwater.com. A new U.S. Green Building Council report ranks Colorado seventh in the nation for sustainable and climate-friendly construction. Colorado boasts 12.5 million square feet of leadership in energy and environmental design, or LEED, certified buildings. Eric Galatis has more. 
Colorado ranks seventh nationally when it comes to addressing climate change and its building practices, according to the latest U.S. Green Building Council report. Charlie Woodruff with the council says Colorado certified 12.5 million square feet of lead buildings in 2022. He adds the state will have opportunities to expand that footprint through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act passed in the last Congress. But also creating economic opportunity for underserved communities as well in rural areas, directing some of those resources to areas that maybe don't have as much green infrastructure or high-performance LEED-certified buildings. Buildings contribute about 40% of the nation's climate pollution. The Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, or LEED, rating system is considered to be the world's most widely used green building program, defining best practices for healthy, high-performing green buildings. It covers how buildings impact everything from extracting and transporting raw materials, operational energy efficiency, greenhouse gas emissions, local water resources, and worker health. Cost is seen as the biggest barrier when developers consider adopting LEED standards, but Woodruff says green buildings are designed to help reduce operational and maintenance costs, which boosts bottom lines for building owners and occupants. Any higher upfront costs can typically be recovered within 5 to 15 years in the life of the building. And so what is your benchmark? Are you looking at the cheapest possible building for day one, or are you looking at the most valuable and highest performing financially building over a life of 20 or 30 years? Lead buildings also do not contain hazardous materials that can act as endocrine disruptors and lead to lost production and more worker sick days. Concrete, bricks, and steel all come with a lot of what's called embodied energy, the energy needed to mine raw materials, refine them, and bring them to job sites. Woodruff says to address climate disruptions at scale, it's important to adapt existing buildings. This is Eric Gladys reporting for the Colorado News Connection. That's it for today's Morning Magazine. Thanks to John Kellen, Steve Miller, Alyssa Palazzo, Alexis Kenyon, Maeve Conran, Jamie Sudler, and Franny Halperin for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Stay tuned for How on Earth. That's coming up after the news headlines from the BBC. BBC.